You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. On today's show, I have back James Lavish to help understand an interesting situation where we're starting to see failed treasury auctions, enormous recessionary pressures building in the markets, along with a reverse repo facility that's getting drained at a breakneck pace. So what does this all mean for the start of 2024 and how will Bitcoin perform through such macro turbulence? We cover all of that and much more. So hold on tight because here's my chat with the thoughtful James Lavish. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm here with Mr. James Lavish. James, welcome back to the Investors Podcast and Bitcoin Fundamentals. Preston, always good to be on with you. I appreciate it. So Bloomberg just banged out (laughs) an article that says, pulling off a soft landing depends on the pilot, sir. And um, (laughs) they have one of your tweets in this article in Bloomberg. Yeah, I mean, this, uh, <laughs> this is just ridiculous. So let's just start there. So last week, I, I just noticed uh, how many stories I was seeing about soft landings, one after another after another. So I just took a screenshot of my Bloomberg terminal of all. I just said soft landing, searched that in the news stories, and boom, all these stories came up. And I just took red circles, circled all the soft landings and posted. I said, this is what the, the front page, it was like pages of, the, of these stories. And uh, so they they quoted that in this article. I guess it came out Friday, maybe because somebody just sent it to me. I didn't know about it. They didn't ask my permission for sure, you know. So, but um, yeah. So they're just they just it's just a it's kind of a a search and and exploration into whether or not there there has been a lot of uh, like <laughs> the, there's a more scientific approach to it than just searching. And looking at how many stories there have been per week and uh, versus hard landing stories. And does it always, does it ever lead to a soft landing? And the reason I searched it, you and I talk about this is that it just feels like the market's a little bit complacent here. They were just laying it on so thick, like everything you see coming out of the media drones, which is how I'm referring to any like traditional media at this point is it's just. It's like they're just chirping all the exact same messaging as if there's one string puller at the top saying, all right, now everybody's going to talk about soft landing from now on. And like you, you posted this and it was so absurd, the amount of articles coming out with soft landing in the titling. And it's just like and it wasn't all. And let's make it clear. It wasn't. This is just in the Bloomberg term, the news feed. Yeah. So it was all kinds of different sources. It wasn't Bloomberg. It was like all kinds of different sources that they're quoting there and or you know that that they're listing there. Uh whether it you know whether it's the Dow Jones or Canadian sources, it just it, it's all over the map. So it's pretty widespread. And that's the point is that there's been a lot of talk of soft landing, a lot of talk. Wonder why. And then today <laughs> you see and you see the the market just march 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 towards new highs here. Yeah. At the same time, you've got these banks laying off. I think uh, Genevieve just tweeted something about upwards of 20,000 financial layoffs thus far this year. I mean, there's well, let's just let's be very let's be very clear. And like, let's define something that I think is really important for people, because you're right. 
the major indexes, whether you're talking about the Dow or the NASDAQ, like they are on the cusp of making new all-time highs. But when we look at what the composition of these indexes the of are, yeah, absolutely. absolutely, there's a couple companies that got massive market caps, the Apples, the Microsofts, you name them. And they are seven. They are performing (laughs) flawlessly, right? They're they're performing better than ever. But if you go into like the smaller cap, they're getting crushed. When you look at bonds, bonds, I mean, there was this minuscule bid that's happened over the last two weeks ever since the the Fed meeting. But like for all intents and purposes, bonds have have had the largest sell-off they've had in what a two-year span on record. It's a couple companies. It's the consolidation of equity into a couple of these companies that is that people just chirp this narrative that the markets are, you know, almost at all time. No, a couple companies are at all time highs, right? right? Right. Yeah. And and so it's true. The breadth has been pretty tight. We've seen, I think it's nine weeks straight now of uh, net uh, decreases in, in estimated earnings versus increases in them for analysts. It appears that we understand that there's a slowdown coming. We had a that abysmal uh, bond auction a couple of weeks ago. We had one this morning. It was a 20-year small auction, maybe $16 billion, which is really tiny now compared to the auctions that, that, we're, that we're having. Which we should did. have no issue, right, from getting that and sold. And it didn't. It, it went off without a hitch. You know, yeah. It was actually, there wasn't even a tail. It, it stopped through slightly from the win issued. So the market, but probably in re- reality, the market was probably a little bit hesitant to buy these things at, at a price that they didn't overbuy them pre-market like they did the 30 year. That was just nuts. So, you know, it's interesting. There, There's, you see the shipping slowdown, you see the inventory numbers, the industrial production numbers, like there's clear red flags. Yet, it seems that everybody is is entertaining this narrative of soft landing. Okay, so let's let's think about this. You could have a few different things that are going on here. Number one, Mike McGlone and I talked about this morning. Uh, the analyst from uh, Bloomberg he said, typically, I agree. You have this escalator up and an elevator down in the markets, right? You escalator up, elevator, escalator, and, and we've seen it over and over and over again. But this past time, we had an elevator down and an elevator straight back up. A slingshot up. A slingshot. It was a rocket ship, right? Remember, you remember the markets in March, oh, March, yeah. March and April of 2020. And so, well, the, the issue here is that there was just so much liquidity poured into the market during that time that maybe that's enabling a little bit of an escalator down. And that could be the case. It could, as long as we don't have some sort of credit event during that escalator down, or as long as you don't have just a steep drop off of production employment. Is this right? the new so, norm? Or is, is that where you're going with this? Is this a slingshot up the new norm? Slingshot and then up escalator? Escalator down? No, I don't believe that that would okay. be the new norm. Can I see? I mean, anything's possible. So the question is, this is the real question for me. Is it because the market is so conditioned now to having a Fed backstop that they are going to buy risk assets and get ahead of it before we have a downturn and they miss it. Because what if the market is up 25, 30% from here 
and then it draws down 10 or 15%, the Fed comes in and saves the market, it goes right back up and you miss that. So you net net, if you bought all the way along, you were fine. So it could be the market is just conditioned to, oh, we're getting QE. The Fed's got our back, no problem. There's no way that they're going to allow for a dramatic drawdown in the markets. Why? It's not the equity markets. They don't care about that. They care about the debt markets. They care about the treasury market. That's number one. That is the number one priority of the United States financial system. Make sure that we can sell treasuries, a lot of them. So don't wait for the handler to put the dog food in the bowl. If you bite the handler's leg as they're carrying the, the bag of dog food to the bowl, the person will spill the dog food and then you can eat You it. can nibble it off the ground. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's, I gotta tell you, man, I've been, I've been investing for almost 30 years. This is the craziest. This well, is- every, you're right. Everybody's been conditioned to that. They realize a very fundamental thing here. They're realizing that these aren't free and open markets anymore. They know the markets are manipulated. And so to to outperform, you have to play a game of, okay, so I think the manipulation is going to to happen at this point in time. So I've got to front run that. And any type of rational free and open market dynamics, like if you're playing that game, like you're using the wrong, you're playing a a game of basketball, all the refs are cheating and you're, you're playing the game as if they're not cheating, right? Like you have to play the game like they're cheating. Exactly. So what are the rules? You gotta, you gotta understand the rules. And if the rules are, well, we can't have a, a steep drawdown. Okay. Those are the rules. Especially in in election year. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I'm I, look, I still have I've lived through a number of these. I don't believe that we'll have no downturn. I just don't believe that. I think mm-hmm. we're going to have a recession. I think the Fed needs a recession to reset prices a little bit. That's what they need to make sure that there's confidence in the dollar and that will induce pain. But it can't be so severe that you draw down on the federal earnings, right? Revenues, tax revenues. To a point where you 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 exacerbate that debt and uh, the we the deficit problem we have. This is the craziest thing. We're running two trillion dollar deficits. We can get into this, but we're not even in a recession, and we're running these deficits. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah. this is insane. I want to get to a different elephant in the room before we get to that yes. elephant in the room because there's many elephants in this room right there's now. There's a lot of elephants. You can't barely even move in this room right where now. Do you want, so many elephants. Which elephant do you want? Uh, I, this is the one I want to talk about. So. When we look at the backstop facility that was stood up with Silicon Valley Bank, you're dealing with a security that is extremely liquid, maybe Mm -hmm. the most liquid asset in global markets. Now I'm seeing, I just tweeted out today, I keep seeing these posts where people are like, oh, this building that was $150 million three years ago is now going for an 80% discount in the open market. And it's like downtown real estate in you name it, major city. And like every post I've seen has been like 70 to 80% discount from the previous purchase price. So what we're talking about is something that is extremely illiquid that is on everybody's balance sheet for banks and you, you name it. These are assets on these balance sheets that are impaired by maybe 70 to 80%. If That's the word impaired. Yeah. Impaired. That's right. 
So, so, so let's talk about that. And, and specifically, let's talk about how illiquid this market is and like what that means for manifesting prices. And like, it's very different than how they were able to react during the Silicon Valley Bank, where they're dealing with something that's really liquid. They stand up this backstop facility. Oh, just push those digital units over here. These are real physical things that might only turn over every seven to 10 to 20 years. Like, what does that mean as we're like trying to manage this quote unquote soft landing that all the drones keep talking about? Well, first of all, the bank term funding program, right? The BTFP, that that in and of itself, that that just that's going to continue to act as a backstop. I don't believe they're going to allow that to just expire. There's no way. This is physical, it's it's imp- it's mathematically impossible, right? It's not as though these these regional banks are suddenly happening upon more liquidity, especially with this this commercial real estate downturn. I do foresee this downturn to continue, but I believe that there's significant activity going on in, in in behind the scenes to be sure that these regional banks are individually not running into problems on their balance sheet because of them, and whether these these deals are being struck at prices that are just barely getting these these regional banks by without impairing their own balance sheets. And so it's it's difficult to know. I don't know exactly what the behind the scenes negotiations are, but it'll be interesting to see who winds up buying most of this real estate because the the function of it is the and I wrote about this in in one of my newsletters, but the function of it is that you have the 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 buyer of the real estate, right? So they've got they own the real estate now they put whatever down for it. And they've got this, what they've got their mortgage on it with the bank. Then typically it's, it's a regional bank in that area that knows the business, the business area and they're, they're, they're willing to lend against it. So they, we have this lockdown occupancy rates are down. So workers are not going into work, which means that each company is, they, they're not re-signing leases for as much square, for as much square footage. So the, the, the amount they're leasing is down. So. You have the occupancy rates are down significantly, 20, 30% in, in areas, right? So then the owner of the building has a cap rate that's not really covering what he thought it, it would. And so he, he's deciding to say, well, at this point, if I just turn in the keys and give the building back, I lose my, my equity in it and I'll just walk away. And it's a non recourse loan. So the bank can't do anything about it. They're just like, Okay, now we have this asset. And to your point, it's impaired. And so now they're going to be sitting on this asset that's impaired 60, 70, some of them 80% from where we underwrote it. And now we've got to get it off our books because we're just sitting on an impaired asset, an illiquid impaired asset, as opposed to an impaired asset that is covered under the BTFP. Exactly. That is you know we can get capital for that at par and it's not it's liquid because we can just put it to the fed so how does the fed deal with this illiquidity issue i mean i joke are they going to have a new acronym yeah it's, see that that's exactly where i'm going so that's like the, that's the shoe i'm waiting to the drop to see if they have a new acronym this spring because remember a lot, a lot of these leases are you know they're just now coming due again and so describe what and, you mean by new acronym, just in case people don't understand what you a mean. A new acronym. So like, uh, yeah. So like the BTFP, that's an acronym. That's a quasi 
it's a new facility. Yeah, QE and people. A lot of people have debated this. And look, if you're if you're injecting liquidity into a, an open market that's not there, that's QE. Mm-hmm. And the difference between and it's not a massive amount, but the liquidity of it and the ease of getting in and out and the the ability for these banks to just shore up their balance sheets with it is it's important. It's QE. It's not a ton, but it's there. That's what it is. It's more significant that they have the ability to. So they don't have individual banks that are impaired. So the question is, what would the next acronym be? Is it going to be some sort of commercial real estate investment trust? <laughs> Fed Fed promoter, Fed, Fed-backed investment trust. I don't know. It, it's just, we're going to have to see when these mortgages reset or what, whatever the, you know, whatever the, the next, the next waterfall event is for each of these commercial real estate holdings and how big they are, mm-hmm. we're going to see a number of them come up. So that's the question. I'm, I'm waiting to see what happens. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, 
How to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments. How investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income. And how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. So James, I want to back up just a touch because you had wrote this incredible thread like a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, talking about these tail, the the tail on the auctions. Last week, we briefly covered this earlier in the show where last week there was this really bad auction Mm. that took place. And the narrative that was spread, I'm kind of curious your take on this as well, was that there was a cyber attack and one of the banks that were going to buy couldn't access and they were using pin drives to try to conduct trades and whatnot. And like that was the excuse that was slapped on this of why the auction was so bad. I'm curious if you agree with that, first of all. And then second yeah. of all, get into a little bit of the dynamics so that people can kind of understand how even that market that we just got done saying is so liquid <laughs> was demonstrating illiquidity last week in the auction that uh, normally doesn't. I think this was what was this like a three standard deviation kind of yeah. tail on this thing yeah. or something? That was something Sigma event. It was crazy. Well, let's back up. So a few weeks ago, we had the the Fed was announcing the, their decision on the rates, on whether they were going to raise or keep rates uh, the same. And that was on, on, a, on a Wednesday. And as typically, the entire market will have their attention on that event. And so they'll, they'll be focused on what's the Treasury... I mean, what's the Fed going to do? Well, the same day, by happenstance, the Treasury was announcing their fourth quarter funding program, their refunding program. So they've got a for your listeners, there's a lot of a lot of people blame the Treasury for all the spending in that's going on in the United States, but the Treasury's not the one who's deciding the spending. It's Congress. The Treasury's just facilitating it. Now they could have done a better job of of issuing bonds that were longer dated way back when we we had zero interest rate policy, but that's neither here nor there now. So but a couple of weeks ago, they announced what their funding was going to be. And all eyes were on this because why? Because over just a few months since the end of the debt ceiling crisis and middle to middle to end of October ish, the treasury had issued another over $2 trillion worth of debt. Mm-hmm. So, and in over 600 billion in just a few weeks, it was just insane. The amount of debt that they're piling onto them, onto that um, mountain of debt that we're already sitting on. And so all eyes are on this say, what, what is the Fed going to, or what is the treasury going to do? How much are they going to need to issue? How much are they going to need to borrow? And so when they announced this, it was actually very positive to the markets because they said, well, there's, we're just going to borrow 776 billion which was less than the market expected and a little bit less than the quarter before. Now, remember, we're running $2 trillion deficits right now annually. So we're on a run rate of $2 trillion. There are things that don't add up. Part of the issue when they borrow is they've got to pay off. They've got to give principal back to bonds that are maturing. So it's not just how much the deficit is. They've got to refund all that debt that's maturing as well. And there's a lot of it maturing. Why? Because we're issuing so many T-bills right now in order to keep the engine going. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
But long and short of it is the Treasury announced that they'll be borrowing more on the shorter end, more T-bills than bonds, which are 30-year, you know, anyway, 10 years and on. They'll be borrowing less than that. And so when they when you look at the schedule they issued, they said, you know, we're gonna the, the three-year, the 10-year, the 30-year note will or the 30-year bond, we're gonna we're gonna borrow about one or two billion dollars less on each of those auctions. And so the market was like, hey, the Treasury's got it under control. Everything's great. No problem. We trust the Treasury. They've got, they're not going to issue too much debt. It's all under control now. Not really. I'm being facetious, but you get the point. So the market was happy with it. Now, flash forward. Well, actually, there were, there were a couple of nuggets in that release. So in that Treasury release, when they, when they told the market what they were doing, one of them was they said that the primary dealers, they basically admitted that they're getting a little bit nervous. They said that in their words, noted a high degree of uncertainty overall around deficit and growth forecasts, reinforcing the Treasury's need to maintain flexibility in their issuance strategy. Right there, they said primary dealers are getting nervous. Okay, who are the primary dealers? Basically, they're the auction houses. So when the Treasury has an auction, you're they use Citigroup and JP Morgan and, and Wells Fargo. And they're out there reselling this to their investors, basically, right? So, but they they're the box, they're the backstop. They're like, well, we'll buy this much to make sure that you get all of your debt issued and, and you can borrow as much as you need. We'll buy this much from you. And so they backstop the, the treasury, basically. And for that, that's for the right to be the, the primary dealer and get fees for that. The second thing they said is that they, the treasury anticipates, anticipates an additional quarter of increases to the auction sizes. Well, that's normal. Of course, they're going to have to issue more. That's, that's not atypical, but they did, they did make that note. They said, just FYI, we may, we, we may auction more off than we, than we've just now announced. Then the third thing they said was, this is the one that gets me. And th- there's a lot of uncertainty around this one. But they said the Treasury continues to make significant progress on its plan to implement a regular buyback program in 2024. What's that mean? Okay. What, yeah. What? Oh my God. Okay. So keep going. <laughs> regular. So they've done this before where they buy. Okay. So what they're talking about there, this all kind of leads up to this 30 year bond auction. But what mm-hmm. they're talking about there is so back in the day, when the bond traders, the big guys, the bond traders, they had these big, huge reams of paper that had all the issues on it, the treasuries and the mortgage backs. They were like, they had these huge runs. And you remember the dot matrix printers? So it's all connected to the, it's all just one big ream, right? And so when you called back then in, in the eighties, nineties, when you called a bond desk, they didn't have all the quotes up here. It wasn't as efficient as it is now. They had these reams of paper. And so they would check if you want to sell a bond, they check the quote from that morning and they would, they would kind of give you a, a price. Well, if it wasn't on that sheet, it was, that was the run. If it wasn't on a sheet, it was, continue, it was considered off the run. So it was mm-hmm. not something that was typically traded. It wasn't very liquid. So they're mm-hmm. like, oh, it's not on the run. I don't know. I'll bid you this for it. I, and you'll, you typically wouldn't get as good of a price. Typically, because it's yeah. not as liquid and they mm-hmm. don't know. So that's called off the run. The treasury, this, this buyback program, which they've done before, is for off the run treasuries. Well, 
But have they done it before when the market has had such a shock that bonds and treasuries have had their worst years in history? Mm. Right. So then now you've got these bonds that are illiquid and they're impaired because they're maybe mm. their 20 year treasury, they're 20 years left in a 30 year treasury that, I mean, they're down significantly. That's what they're talking about. Are they going to buy them right at the price? Are they going to buy them at market price? They're going to make it a little bit easier. Like it's just they're providing liquidity to ensure they, they're basically saying they're, they need to ensure liquidity in the treasury market. Mm-hmm. And so sounds to me like a little bit like a little bit like quasi yield curve control slash QE to me. Mm-hmm. It's unclear exactly how the program's going to work yet. So we'll get more details next year, but they did announce it and they were working towards it. Mm-hmm. Okay. It make, by now the way, it makes, it makes total sense that when they eventually do roll out yield curve control, they're going to do everything they can to kind of obfuscate the, yeah. the, the, the exactly. terminology of yield curve control as much as possible. There will be, yeah, there will be acronyms. Yeah. There, will be, there will be, this is no, this is not QE. This is not yield curve control. Well, similar to the backstop facility, right? Like I would argue right. that even that's a form of yield curve control for banks only. Yeah. And so, and here's the point is that, look, I do not expect the government, I do not expect the Treasury and the Fed to team up and do outright yield curve control like Japan. That is mm-hmm. not what I expect. Mm-hmm. However, I do fully expect that they'll, they'll do these back door kind of hidden obfuscated deals where they're, they're giving liquidity, they're injecting liquidity into the markets without it's not really yield curve control or qe now flash forward where we have a 30-year bond auction i'm i'm on a call for my hedge fund and we'll talk about that later but for uh my for, I'm, I'm on with a company listening to what their what their projected earnings are and uh and i'm getting these messages pop up and uh one of them might have been from you i can't remember what it was like did you see that bond auction and I was like, but bond auction, but no, I didn't, I, didn't, I haven't heard anything. You know, I'm focused on this call. And so we end the call, I pull it up and I'm like, oh, the 30 year bond auction was today. Oh, how'd it go? You know? And I look up and I was like, I couldn't, I, I thought I was reading the numbers wrong. I was like, this is wrong. This is the 30 year, isn't it? Like what? The bid to cover was what? To make it really simple for your listeners, there's a, there's a few metrics that you look at when you, and I do have a, a thread all about this. It simplifies it for you. If you want to go back and see, well, I'll give you the link to it. But when you look at a treasury auction, there's a few things you're looking at. The first big thing you're looking at is, is the bid to cover. It's like, how, how many bids did they get versus how, how much the treasury was trying to sell? And that includes primary dealers, it includes everything. The bid to cover for this it's typically for the 30 year treasury. It's typically, it's been in like the 2.5, 2.6, 2.7 range, somewhere around there. And in this auction, it was 2.236. Absolutely terrible. I mean, it was like, whoa, is really? That's really low. Then the second thing was the foreign bidders. So the, it's called the indirect bidders. So indirect bidders dropped. They've been steadily dropping, but they dropped from 65% last auction, which was down from 75% at the beginning of the year to 60% this auction. So foreign bidders only bid for 60%. Now do the math. So you've got 60% there. 
the direct bidders, which is the, the hedge funds, the investment funds and institutional funds, the, me and you, whoever was in there buying, buying, I wasn't buying, but anybody in there who's, who's buying these treasuries, they only took down 15%. So 60 plus 15, that gives you 75, which means that the primary dealers were left with 25% of the auction, which was like, Wow, that's a lot. These guys usually take down around 10%, maybe 9 or 10%. Mm -hmm. They were left with 25%. That means there was a big hole there for demand. Again, to make it easy for for your listeners, it's a these auctions are called Dutch auctions. And so what that means is that if you or me, a retail person wants to buy a treasury bond, they go out to Treasury Direct, they put in, they say, I want to buy $1,000 worth, and they just put in their, their order. Well, they're going to get whatever the whatever the auction ends up being. But for everybody else, for the institutions, what they do is they submit a bid for the amount of bonds that they're willing to buy at what yield they're willing to buy it at. So that yield, basically the ending yield that the treasury decides on for the auction is as high as it needs to go in order to fill the number of bonds they need to sell, the amount of bonds they need to sell. So if they have 10 million here, 20 million here, 3 million here, they've got to keep going up. If they, if they have like only, say they have, they, it's a $30 trillion or a $30 billion auction and 20 billion is down at 4.75%, but then another 10 billion is up at 4.8%. Well, then everybody gets 4.8% because that's where the order is filled. Okay. Does it make sense? So that's, I know you understand this, but that's basically how these work. The way that this auction went was they weren't getting enough bids. They had to go all the way up to the the price they had to go to, the yield they had to go to. And so what happens is these bonds trade before the auction in something called pre-market or when issued. And so investors are expecting to know where that yield is going to be. They're expecting that it's going to come out to a certain spot. And if their expectation is that the yield is lower than it actually ends up being, in other words, the treasury had to offer more yield to get the bonds that they needed to get the money they needed to borrow, that's called a tail. And a tail in a bond auction like this, which was $34 billion, I believe, I'm sorry, $24 billion, I believe. And a, a tail for something this large of two or three basis points is it's kind of like, eh, that's kind of an ugly tail. That's not great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That means that the win issued market was trading two or three basis points more optimistically mm-hmm. than the actual auction occurred. So the win issue was like, ah, oh, man, I bought this at too high of a price. And that they, they paid more money they needed to. And when you're talking about billions and billions of dollars, and you're talking about 30 year treasury. That's a lot. That's a, that's a big number at, you know, in return over 30 years. So that's a, that's pretty ugly. So this, when I looked at this, when I looked at the returns on this or the, uh, the results of this and I saw the tail pressing 5.3 basis points, 5.3 basis points. If you're like four, five or six basis points, it is abysmal. It is near. Well, you've got to multiply it, is- it by the size of the offering, right? Which is. Those and, are huge and, numbers. <laughs> and for the, yeah, exactly. And yeah. but for the, the investors who bought it pre market. Oh, yeah, they got they, they lost five basis points. Yeah, which is massive. For the whole duration of that treasury. Yeah. For 30 years. Yeah. That's, I mean, that, it's a big number. It was 
abysmal. It, put it this way. It's the worst tailing auction. That's the biggest tail that we've seen in a 30-year treasury since 2011. And that's when the S&P downgraded the U.S. debt for the first time. Yeah. that's the So there was no event in this one. It just tailed down really ugly. No, there was the and cyber was, attack. Come on, James. So that's, so that's the next thing. So... <laughs> So then you, okay, so the Chinese malware. So there was apparently, there was a malware attack on ICBC Bank of China. It's one of the largest banks in the world. And you're right, they were, it was forced them to take USB sticks and run them back and forth between desks and offices and buildings to settle trades and move capital because they couldn't get online. They, they, their systems were literally down. So you started hearing people say, well, that's why the, that's why the treasury auction was so bad. Oh, because yeah, yeah. The, China, the Chinese bank was down. Okay. But in reality, in one of the Bloomberg articles I read right afterwards, it said that the, that, that unit of ICBC only has the one that deals with the U.S. treasuries only has $24 billion of assets. So how big of a bidder they, could they have been of this auction anyways? Number one. Number two... So it means they were likely not material. And number two, Janet Yellen came out right afterwards. She was asked about it. She said they didn't see any evidence of that malware attack having any impact on the treasury market. So also she didn't um, get the memo in time. She didn't get, either didn't get the memo or there really wasn't. I mean, of course, they yeah. really just had to admit it was a dismal auction. So uh, how did the, how did the, how did the market react? The market reacted. Well, <laughs> the market moved over Four percent in just a few hours, and most of that was in a few minutes. I mean, four percent on a yeah. treasury. This is the this is the global reserve asset. I mean, this is not a meme stock. Four percent on a on a treasury in, a, in just a in most of that in a few minutes. It was mind boggling. Yeah, because you're was, talking close to five trillion dollars. You know, really round math, but something of that magnitude in nominal size to the global economy because of that, right? Exactly. Exactly. So it was ugly. Well, maybe not that much because you're only talking about the long You're talking about the only the 30 yeah, year, yeah, yeah. but still. But still, yeah. it's a big, it's a, it's a really big number is the point. Yeah. Well, but remember, it's not just that. The whole market reacted. Yeah. The entire, like when you look at the, the, react, the reaction of, of bonds across the spectrum, mm -hmm. I, I think it was their worst sell-off in, in it, it was worse off in years. Mm -hmm. it, it, I know it was a worse sell off this year. It, it was a worse sell off since the, since the Silicon Valley, which mm -hmm. was a really bad one mm -hmm. across the spectrum. But the point of all of this is, Preston, there was no event. It just happened. It just, yeah, there was nothing other than. So it wasn't like you could point to, oh, it was Silicon Valley Bank or, mm -hmm. oh, well, you know, Lehman Brothers <laughs> just. Oh, because the, the U.S. debt got downgraded. There was no event. There was nothing yeah. to point to, except the malware attack, which likely did not have any impact whatsoever. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. 
That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So I, I got one more thing that I want to talk about, and I would I would classify everything we've talked about since the start of the show as the backdrop behind Bitcoin at the centerpiece of this whole episode, right? So we're going to get to Bitcoin, but I got one other thing that I want to talk about in the backdrop as we're talking about all of this. Everything that we've said. Right now, today, you have long-duration bonds being the biggest overweight position in U.S. portfolios since 2009, with all of that said. Yeah. Okay. Piled into it. Yeah. We already have 8% deficit to GDP right now, which is the lowest I can, the chart that I see going back into the 1960s 
It got lower than that through the COVID very brief spike, but this is the lowest that we've been in a non-recession period for since we've been on the petrodollar system. Uh, you start getting to like 12% deficit to GDP, it's getting very squirrely for that, that country. Uh, Luke Roman's projecting when we do get into a recession, it could go to 14 to 16% deficit to GDP. Yeah, because uh, you, you, you've got a drawdown on both your earnings, your, mm-hmm. your, your, rev- your tax revenues, mm-hmm. they're, they're decreasing, and your entitlements are increasing because of unemployment and social welfares. So all of that, and the majority of portfolios are long duration or long on long duration bonds. Typically, when you see Wall Street and everybody retail, everybody piling into something, it is time. There should be red flags and alarm bells going off. Like, hey, I'm probably the sucker at the table. But everything that we're seeing from these deflationary, whether we're talking about commercial real estate and how illiquid that is and how it's basically going to impair and just all these monetary fiat units evaporate in like with a snap of a finger, you got the reverse repo that I'm hearing is going to not be this supply of liquidity into the system call at January, February any longer, uh, which will evaporate you know, fiat units in the system like the snap of a finger. It seems like that would be a smart place to be. But everything about everybody being there like just has me yeah, saying so there's something seriously wrong. <laughs> I mean the, the uh, yeah, hedge funds are piled in. They're piled, piled in. Piled in. Piled in. Okay, so let's talk through that. Let's unpack a few things there. First, the, the, let's unpack the the reverse repo. I wrote all about this very simple terms this past weekend for anybody who wants to read it on my newsletter, very simple terms. But the bottom line is the reverse repo facility has just under $1 trillion left in it. It had $2.5 trillion, now it has one left in it. What has been going on is the treasury has been issuing, as we said at the beginning of, of this segment here, is the treasury has been issuing shorter term T-bills in order to fund the government. Why are they doing that? They're doing that because the reverse, the, the money that is in the reverse repo facility is excess capital that's at banks. The banks take that capital and park it at the Fed overnight. And they park it in the facility. It's called the reverse repo facility. They get an interest rate on that. That's a little bit better than Fed funds. Now, what the treasury is doing is they're saying, okay, well, we can tease that money out by offering a little bit better rate on the T-bills, which are four weeks, eight weeks, 16 weeks, whatever they are. Okay, they're they're offering these T bills that are a little bit better, and they're taking money out of that reverse repo facility. And as those T bills mature, that money gets re-upped right back in there. Also, the deposits from investors or from uh, individuals, they're using deposits from banks. They're getting drawn down and put into money markets. Money markets buy T bills because it's it's almost it's almost like cash. There's very little interest rate risk. For the short end of the curve, so if interest, even if interest rates go down by one two percent, you you only have a few basis point risk if you're in a if you're in a thirty day T bill, it's not a big deal. That's why they're almost like cash. It's very low risk. That's one thing that's going on right now, and that and then that's being drawn down. And you're right. I talked to Lynn about this at Pacific Bitcoin. We were talking about that facility, and I think it's going to be drawn down by the end of January. I don't see how it gets past that at this point with this amount of spending. Now, 
the trade, the basis trade. And so where all these hedge funds are piled into this, you know, this is what you and I talked about on uh, Peter McCormick's show, just for reference. If people listen to that, that's what we're about to talk about right now. Go ahead, James. Right. And so what's important about this is I do believe that it is a pretty good trade for the moment. Things can change fast, but for a trade, because I do believe we're going to have a harder landing than that soft landing narrative that we keep hearing about. I do believe we're going to have a down, downturn. We're going to have a sharp uplift in, uh, in uh, unemployment, and we're going to have a deflationary event that forces the Fed to lower rates next year, which means that the long duration treasuries will go up in price and their yields will come down. So as a trade, it's pretty obvious if you think that we're going to have a recession, that's a good place to be. Now, this is, such a, this is such a liquidity trap, right? The, fl- the flip side of that is <laughs> it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Why? Because of what you just said about Luke Roman. I agree with him that we're going to see deficits widen even more because you're going to have a decrease in tax revenue and an increase in, in uh, entitlement spending. And so as those deficits grow, so does the need for the treasury to borrow more. They're going to be in the, then the issue that we've seen over the last number of months that has all but been forgotten the, today and the last couple of days is that there are what we call the bond vigilantes who are out there saying, no, I want to be compensated for something called term premium. That means that the further I go out on this yield curve, I want more interest for the risk that the Fed or the Treasury is going to have to issue a tsunami of debt, which is only going to precipitate the need for more perpetual high inflation, money printing, monetizing our own debt, and having more inflation. What I was going to say is, to your point, as they're demanding a higher yield for this because of that risk... That yield is going to be like a like a uh, massive incentive for more and more people to pile in with even more leverage because they think that they're able to capture additional yield, almost like what you saw during the the uh, what was happening in the crypto uh, market, where there was these massive spreads for a basis yeah. type trade, and everybody's like, "Wow, there's tons of money to be made here," so they all pile in. And as they all get in there, it turns into a massive, massive liquidity shock that manifests itself in a snap. So what we saw in that 30-year treasury auction last week, remember, Wall Street sees that first. Why? Because they have professional instruments to know where the wind issue traded, what the tail risk, what the tail was, how big the bid to cover was. Like They know immediately. So if we have a we have a, a shocking event in a treasury auction. They're going to know it first. And guess who's going to be getting out of treasuries first? Right. So they're yeah. going to be able to just, and Preston, we're talking about these trades are massive, mm-hmm. massive. You know, I mean, it's not unusual to have a few hundred million dollar trade and trade. I've done hundred million dollar trades in treasuries. You just, you know, I just need to move a hundred million dollars. Like these are huge markets that can just completely overwhelm little investors. And so the problem is trying to time that 
is going to be difficult. So if you can, like, you're trying to time this down to back to zero interest rate problem, zero interest rate policy. That's a dangerous trade in my mind. In my my opinion, I think that we're we're going to go back to higher structural interest rates because we're going to need higher inflation. You know, that's just there's and investors are going to want to be compensated for it at some point here. You're going to have such a rivalry going back to this idea of liquidity, right? They can get on the keys, they can clack on the keys and get more units added into this market very easily to save it and to, uh, I'm, I'm using quotes when I say save it, but stabilize it. But in the background or at the same time simultaneously, how about the, how about the commercial real estate market? Like it's going to be having all sorts because you're going to be watching wild fluctuations in yields, right? And like none of that is getting solved for those people's balance sheets that are getting prepared in physical, hard, very illiquid things. And I I think you're you're going to see such a dichotomy of who's getting rescued and how they're getting rescued versus people that are squatting on those physical real estate. Yeah, I do. I, I expect some. I, I expect significant consolidation in the banking industry. Investors are going to, and, and, and depositors are going to just continue to flee to the the globally systematic important banks. Something interesting though is that I think it was S and P. I, I just saw a headline before jumping on the show about the S and P saying that they're cons- they're they're concerned that, and they put them on on they put these banks on on rating watch. Because they're concerned that the government's not going to have the ability to just backstop the globally systematic important banks. Like, that's a what? Well, who's going to backstop them then? Like, who's right? If if the Treasury's not going to backstop them, who's going to backstop them? Of course, they're going to backstop them, but it's going to mean massive money printing to do so if we have a major credit event. I've been saying all along that I think that there's a much higher than non-zero probability of a credit event between now and 2025. Oh yeah. The, I mean, that's a base, uh, that's my base case, right? Like you're going to have, well, my base case is definitely a, a hard landing. The question is it, yeah, how yeah. bad of a credit event do we have? I would be, yeah, I would put, I would be surprised if we don't have one between now and the end of next year because of the, just the sheer amount of leverage in the system and the rate at which we raised rates that and because it's not an even distribution of who has all that capital we keep talking about all this capital that's out there all this the, there's so much money in the system but it's not a it's not an even distribution so at some point at some in some place like you're like you're alluding to it could be that you have a cascading event from a, a commercial real estate event, credit event that winds up imploding some either a lot of eyes are on these regional banks, but it could be a private lender that we're just not expecting that causes them to implode. We'll have to see because so, the private lenders, are, it's opaque. It's hard to see who's doing what. And they will have counterparty. There will, they, there will be counterparty risk to those that could be large. So that's the question. That's another thing that I'm, I'm just starting to dig into is like, how much of this private credit is out there and what are the actual risks? 
it almost, I guess maybe I'm pushing on this too hard, but it, to me, it almost seems like if you have a lot of exposure to physical things, commercial real estate being the, of prime importance, and the big banks that are heavily exposed versus the ones that aren't, Wells Fargo, Citizens, Morgan Stanley, those are some of the bigger banks that are heavily exposed to commercial real estate. JP Morgan, Goldman, some of them are less exposed. But the three that I named there, just off the top, those are the ones that I think are going to just get hammered in this coming thing that's, that's materializing itself because of their exposure to physical reality. We talk that's about right. Bitcoin and like how like proof of work and how it's tethered to energy and how it's tethered to physical reality and how it's these digital energy packets that preserve your buying power. I think we got to look at traditional finance and we got to look at how it's tethered to physical reality and how maybe some are less tethered to physical reality and they're able to kind of like lever the government to basically protect them because they can just clock on some keys and produce another couple trillion units to, to save them. Well, that's going to make it very interesting as we come through into this next year and we do get these ETFs approved, which I fully expect that we get ETF, multiple ETFs approved. They're going to have spot, to tether spot, themselves Bitcoin. to it, right? Like they, they have to. Spot Bitcoin ETF. And so when we have that, I mean, just imagine that we get the spot Bitcoin ETFs approved. They, it provides an instant super highway on ramp for institutional investors, RIAs, small family offices that just don't have the ability or don't want to take on either the career risk or that small institutional risk of holding their own keys and all the settlement and all that stuff we've talked about before. But imagine that's happening at the same time that you have meltdowns over here and investors are searching for places to put their capital. Well, it also, James, it also provides an anchor for really distressed assets that if, if there's some type of Bitcoin or hard asset that's, that's also associated with the balance, balance sheet or ownership of that equity or even a, a bond, right? Like, I think that there's something there. And I think that once people start to maybe even insert a small amount of it, commingle, and, and I know that has a very negative uh, connotation, but like, you mix Bitcoin with these legacy assets, even in small proportions, it might calm the volatility of the price swings that you see in fiat terms, uh, for, especially for like commercial real estate. Yeah, eventually, absolutely. And it, it will eventually. But that's the, and those are the events we're watching. So this year should be very interesting. It, it's going to be very interesting for Bitcoin between the ETF, the halving, you know, we have a, a, a likely recession, in my opinion possible credit event. It's going to be interesting to see just how Bitcoin reacts to all this and how people react to that and, and look at Bitcoin. Because once the investors, once you have these investors, and I, and I use this term this morning, uh, talking to a few people, it was the investors, when they have this, the ETF, they're going to be able to just leg into a trade. They're going to buy a little bit because then they're, they're going to be forced to learn about it because now it's there. They have no they have absolutely no defense of saying, well, I mean, I couldn't do it because I didn't want to deal with the settlement or the custody yeah, or the operations or the, the pricing. Like That's all gone. Mm -hmm. Now it's like, it's just like a stock on the stock exchange at this point. If you can buy it, you, know, you used to not be able to buy gold because you didn't have a place to store it 
you know, a, a, a way, how to custody it, a, a way to, to move it back and forth. Like you're going to buy $10 million worth of gold. Like, how are you going to get that? Like, who, who's going to, where are you going to put it? So that's what people are claiming with Bitcoin at this point. Mm-hmm. That's what in, in, institutional investors and RAs and small family offices, like they're like, well, we just can't deal with it. Now they're not going to have an excuse. So once you have that, then that learning, it, 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 they have no choice but to start learning about it at the very same time that these things could be happening that we're talking about. By the way, if you're a CFO of a, of a large organization and you're trying to buy Bitcoin and you do it through a BlackRock ETF vehicle, I have pity on you. And you need to get smart and understand why taking physical custody is so much more important, especially in the long run when you understand like where this is going to be going on layer twos and fees that are collected for for you know sitting on actual bitcoins and not letting BlackRock hold them. You need to do your research. That's all I'm going to say. For treasuries, yeah. For institutional investors, it's it's much more complicated. But yeah. yeah. It's much more complicated, but if you do the work, uh, pull out the the micro strategy playbook and and understand how they did it. If you want to, yeah, eventually, eventually they will. Yeah, yeah they're going to have to. Well, they don't have to, but if they want to do it in a way that yields to better results, they should. Exactly. So the last thing I want to talk to you about on on the Bitcoin side, I have something that I'm watching that I'm that I'm looking at that's just blowing my mind. Before I tell you what that is, I'm curious if there's anything that you want to highlight that you are excited about or that you're seeing in Bitcoin in particular that you think is noteworthy right now. Oh, I mean, look, you know that I have that we recently launched the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. And I am everything we're talking about, the the economy, macro, all all of this stuff just emboldens me and gets me more excited and more optimistic about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And the ecosystem and the people that we're meeting and these and the operators of these companies, the founders, the there's some smart there's cats some really people out there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel some I, I I don't understand some of the stuff that and we're there are some really smart people out there. And I'm super excited about this space. I'm mm-hmm. super excited about the opportunities in this space. So I mean, you remember back in the day of uh, of the internet when that was taking off and you're you're trying to find places that you can that you can uh, benefit from, and you can help. And it, this is this is what it feels like right now. It feels like the dawn of the internet in mm-hmm. Bitcoin, and it is super exciting. And we're seeing awesome opportunities. So uh, I, I want to make that clear that I'm optimistic, as optimistic as ever in yeah. in the Bitcoin space. And the fund is for accredited investors. I have to I have to say that it's not my rule. It's the SEC's rule, but. Uh, we're still taking some investors before the end of the year. We only have 99 slots. Again, not my rule, the SEC's rule, but we're super excited. And so I just want to make sure that anybody's watching this, you hear any doom and gloom and the macro outlook, that only makes this, this space more exciting and, uh, and more opportunities here. So this plays on a theme that I just love talking about, which is. We are not talking about just the problem. Sure, we defined it very clearly throughout the show, but we're also talking about what the solution is and the engineered solution that already exists that's there that can solve all of these problems. And you see so little of that in legacy financial news and media. It's just all day long, problem definition. There is no solution except for vote for this politician, which is just laughable, right? 
Hey, anyway, so the the point that I wanted to, to bring up, James, real fast, I am blown away by these hodl waves and how you have 70% of issued Bitcoin that has not moved. You are a person that understands the supply demand dynamics of a stock or a bond or whatever it might be and how that drives price. And we're looking at something that's literally up over 100% on the year. I'm pretty sure it's up over 100% on the year. And you have seen even deeper conviction of the people that are holding their coins even tighter than they were when the price was you know, 50% lower than where we're at right now. This is, I guess, my question to you as a veteran of financial markets. Have you ever, ever seen a stock or a bond or a commodity or whatever that is up 100% on the year and you don't have anybody taking any profits? In fact, you have people buying even more, like heavily buying. By the way, this is the highest... It's at 70%. That's the highest number it's ever been since inception of Bitcoin right now. What does that mean going into 2024, in your opinion? In my opinion, well, first of all, it's like a closely held stock, mm-hmm. right? So you've got these, the, the, the people who really know the company the best, these yeah. hodlers know Bitcoin the best. They're buying more. They, they're buying more and they, they're, they're holding, they're hoarding it just like a closely held company that... Mm-hmm it's very difficult to get liquidity on the other side. So in the markets. And so what I, what do I see? I see in the near future, again, like we don't need the ETFs for Bitcoin to grow by factors. But when that happens, I, I do see a period of price discovery, which is the, that's, that's the operative phrase. When because what happens with inst- institutions is when they need to buy some, they just say, buy $10 million, buy $25 million, buy $50 million today, just participate, meaning just go along with whatever's, whatever's going on in the market, meaning try to be as much percentage of the trade as you can without moving the price yourself. Just participate. And so what happens is you have all of the institutions getting in there and all of them just participating because they're just, they're like, well, I got the average price and you know, I didn't do better or worse. And I did just as well as anybody else. They just want to okay. exposure at whatever price. They want the, yeah. And so price discovery happens when you have these pockets of illiquidity where it just jumps up and they all just move up together and they'll just keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that until they get the amount that they need. And it doesn't matter if, if, if a few million dollars worth trades or a hundred million dollars worth trades, it, it can move the price depending on whether or not there are any closely held shares willing to be given up at that price. And so that's when people who are confused by this are like, well, but you need an additional half a trillion dollars to come into the market for Bitcoin to double from here? And the answer is no. If nobody sells between here and $70,000 Bitcoin and you trade one sat, you're just getting just warmed one up. One single sat, <laughs> the price of Bitcoin has doubled. And now yeah. it's worth yeah. the, the, Then everybody's uh, share of, of that chain is now worth a trillion dollars. It's hard to conceptualize, but that's just reality. 
So yes, that's a good so point. All, all I heard was James Lavis makes forecast of God candle in 2024. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do see a God candle in, in Bitcoin's future. I don't know when, but uh, I do. I agree yeah. with you. I think there will be one in 2024. Okay. So you mentioned uh, your Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. Is there anything else that you want to uh, highlight to the audience or throw out there? I, I'll have a link to your Twitter. What else? you? Got? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so if you, if you are interested in in the uh, in learning more about the fund, just go to bitcoinopportunity.fund uh, and we'll, you know, we can send you a package and uh, you and just, you just have to check off that you're a accredited investor and make sure that, that we know that. And I see your little buddy. Oh yeah. The door person. was supposed to be shut. They've never made it into an episode until today okay oh, and my. so uh i'm special <laughs> so uh and then yeah and then i write the uh information newsletter and uh every week i take one complicated concept financial concept and simplify it for people and it's free you can just go to the link in my twitter bio or go to just jameslavish.com and sign up and it's been doing great people love it so and i appreciate it it's a fun thing to do every saturday just sit down and write something about the market and get people to understand a little bit more about what's going on in the re- real world of, uh, of finance and, and these institutional worlds and, uh, and how these things work. Well, James, I appreciate you making time and coming on the show. And uh, this is what was brought over to me right down here. So uh, I guess I got my <laughs> work awesome. cut out for me. <laughs> All right. Go have fun. All right. Thank you. See you. All right, buddy. See you next time. Bye. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.